Well, let's uh, get going, and not a bad place to start is prayer. Father, this morning, uh, it's your kids again, uh, coming to the really only place there is to go, the foot of the throne, and we're so grateful for that. And we're also grateful that you wrote some things down a long time ago. You used your men to write some things that was important for them. And it still works today. So, Father, as we take a look at Titus, I would pray that uh, we would get serious about sound doctrine that leads to godly behavior for today and tomorrow for each of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's go back a few years in our memory. <clears throat> we had just moved into our church building here, and we were ready to get it, try to get it painted and fixed and furnished. Some of you remember that well. A few were initially assigned to get part of that started. Some of us went shopping for paint and drop cloths and brushes, and some headed out to pick up materials for soundboards, and some ran home to get more tools. After some scurrying around, some came back to church with Pastor J.D. and Lori, and uh, just to confirm the paint colors. Uh, I remember coming back to the church excited to get started, but I... Couldn't find any of them. Someone, someone was still at Home Depot drooling over all the tools he would buy. And then there were the instructions about using the right paint in the right rooms and not mistakenly change the color schemes. And then there was also, should we tape or should we just freehand around door jams? Those were the big heavy issues. And summer's in the quiet of it all. Lori was down in the basement in the hallway, just quietly cutting in. As I said, let's just imagine. If you're wondering who went where and when and why and how anything got done, don't be surprised. We're not the first group to be excited about a new project without being exactly sure as to who starts where and when and how. As we look at the book of Titus in his tumultuous times and where Paul traveled on his missionary journeys and who were his faithful helpers and who was assigned to whom, to what, and when would they ever see each other again, my mind kind of spins. We find Paul on his first missionary journey in Lystra where he runs into Timothy and he sees him saved. Then Paul sends him to Ephesus and writes to him from Corinth. Later, Titus gets saved. And then later on, he goes on the third missionary journey with Paul and eventually going to Crete. Obviously, somebody bigger than you or I is in charge of logistics. But it's also true that in our church scenario, we were motivated and intended to get on getting a building ready for worship. In Paul's case, they were also motivated, intent on spreading the gospel. And whether or not I understand the whole plan 
and methodology and personnel involved doesn't matter. God did. In some ways, the book of Titus was written in just such a turmoil. The world at that time was getting larger by the day, and the work team was expanding, but the marching orders were the same. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. The specifics is what Titus was all about. This all happened on the island of Crete, an island about 150 miles long and 30 miles wide, located southeast of Greece. Since it was so mountainous, the people mainly depended on the Mediterranean Sea for their livelihood, either fishing or shipping. According to Acts 27, the ship that was originally to take Paul to Rome briefly harbored there, but his trip was interrupted by storms and even a shipwreck. So obviously Paul did not have time or opportunity doing the extensive preaching or ministry there. And Crete in particular had a bad reputation. As we find in Titus 1.12, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's not exactly complimentary. The term to act as a Cretan became synonymous with to play the liar. Even their tallest mountain, Mount Ida, was claimed to be the birthplace of the Greek god Zeus. And yet, there were several churches there that Titus was left to minister to. Obviously, they were new. They were immature in their faith and probably small in number. So how'd they get there? We go back to Acts 2, we, at the time of Pentecost, we read in verse 5, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from among every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not these men speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears him in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Apparently, several from the Crete had gone to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. They were saved, and they came back home to Crete. There were Christians there long before Paul arrived in Acts 27. As stated earlier, Paul on his trip to Rome had briefly stopped there, met with some of the new Christians, and was interested in returning. Later, after his imprisonment in Rome, he traveled back there with Titus, and shortly thereafter wrote this letter about 63 AD. But first, let's look at who Titus was. And what was his relationship with Paul? According to Galatians 2, Titus was born in Syrian Antioch and raised in a Greek household. He may have been converted <clears throat> in early in life during the major revival that we find recorded in Acts 11. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. 
the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In Titus 1.4, it seems obvious that Paul was extremely instrumental in Titus' life as he addresses him as my true child in the common faith. This was not uncommon to find references to Paul's intimately involved in the spiritual birthing rooms, the nursery, and the adult teaching sessions of many people in Scripture. We see almost the identical statements being made in reference to Timothy, as we've heard the last two weeks with Carrie and Michael in First and Second Timothy. Probably no place in Scripture is more indicative of the close relationship that Paul had that we find listed in Romans 16. He is wishing to revisit all of them. He says in 1532, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. I'm actually going to read some of chapter 16 because um, I think it's important that we see those people. It's not just an athletic or a social award banquet to honor Paul. Rather, it's encouraging and admonishing and instructing and demanding to us. Actually, I'm somewhat embarrassed to read it as it has something to say about who have I been involved with to be influential in. And you can fill in your own name. And listen to this, and you can count on the side. Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and give her help that she may need from you. For she's been a great help to many people, including me. Oh, greet Priscilla and Nicola, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Also, the church that meets at their house. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. And Eponidas, who was our first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. And they were in Christ before I was. Apollatus, whom I love in the Lord. Apollos, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those belong the household of Aristobulus. And then two other women with long names that aren't Dutch. Um, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me. And then some other guys, the brothers of his, saints with him. Greet them with a holy kiss. All the church of Christ sends greetings. Tertius, I wrote down this letter. Greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church were to enjoy. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works. That's, that's getting downtown. And I just find that so encouraging. There's a good uh, inside peek at who Paul was influencing. Just think of what impact he must have had on Titus's life, not to mention the encouragement Paul received from Titus. That worked both ways. At a particularly low point in Paul's ministry, we find... Um, in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 2, Paul writes, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, 
I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. That's sweet, and it's real, and it's encouraging. Certainly for the rest of us. And I understand that. A couple weeks ago before Christmas Eve service, Connie and I were ready an hour ahead of time. Just kind of waiting. We said, let's go to church. I just want to be with my people. That's my people. That's you and you and you. That's wonderful. I'm grateful for God working in you, my people. Now regarding Titus's beginning, actually we don't find Titus even mentioned in the book of Acts. Even though it seems that he was saved during Paul and Barnabas' year-long ministry in Antioch. His missionary student internship seems to begin with his being a poster child for the doctrine of sola scriptura. Saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. According to Galatians 2, we find that Titus, being of Greek ancestry, was never circumcised. In fact, when Paul went into Jerusalem, he was met with Judaizers who were emphatic that all Gentiles had to be first circumcised. Since Paul recognized his being called to an apostle to the Gentiles, he vehemently opposed this doctrine, even taking Titus with him as living proof. As we find in verse 1, I took Titus along. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them <clears throat> for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. In Acts 15, you know, as the council meeting in Jerusalem, that matter was very peaceably resolved in a godly manner. That was Titus's first on-the-field experience as a co-worker with Paul. Then later, in, as recorded in 2 Corinthians 8, we find Paul beginning to send Titus to Corinth. Corinth was a difficult scenario for Paul. A church in Corinth was weak, surrounded by idolatry and immorality. They struggled with their Christian faith and lifestyle. Through his personal visits and letters, Paul tried to instruct them in the faith, helping them resolve their conflicts. He actually wrote four letters to them, <clears throat> to that church, but two of them were lost. As you probably know, in our Bibles, we have second and, and uh, uh, fourth, the second and the fourth letters known as first and second Corinthians. This obviously complicated some of the communication and the tension there. To say the least, Paul's ministry in Corinth was difficult, often in painful relationships. In second Corinthians 8, we continue to see Titus' role as a friend and a co-worker of Paul. <clears throat> I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. What's more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering. 
which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. The sending of Titus to a difficult situation in a church going through some personal issues was certainly an indication of the trust that Paul had in him. And Titus apparently demonstrated his spiritual and social and emotional maturity as he brought back the report to Paul when they later met in Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 7. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. No one was more aware of the need for credibility in the ministry than Paul. Many, especially the Judaizers, questioned his apostolic authority. That's why he begins his letter to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And Titus, his son in the common faith, also needed to be founded and true to the gospel. During Paul's first missionary journey, we get a look at some of the ways that Paul encouraged the spread of the gospel. In Acts 14, we read, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. We'll find that same Paul speech evident as he models this for Titus. Step by step, the ministry continues to the personal spiritual growth of Titus. Titus had traveled with Paul for some time. During Paul and Barnabas' trip to Jerusalem in Acts 15, he became very well acquainted with the arguments of the Judaizers. So he was familiar with dealing with them. Paul now sees that Titus' next calling may be to the island of Crete, which was a spiritually lost island. After Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, he took Titus with him to Crete, ministering together. As was typical of Paul's ministry style and calling, his purpose here was to start churches, lead them under the care of godly men, and then to leave, to minister somewhere else. Titus 1.5, Paul states, The reason I left you in Crete was so that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He even indicates the plan for Titus ending, ending that ministry in Crete. And he says in chapter 3, 12, As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. Paul not only has Titus's assignment and the specific outlines of what was needed to accomplish there, he also left instructions for when to leave and who his replacements would be. Since Paul had already spent a bit of time with Titus at Crete and familiar with the situation, he says in chapter 1, straighten out what was left unfinished. They had apparently already begun contacting some of the churches and thus were aware of the poor spiritual condition that must be addressed. In chapter 1, he says, we read, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group, That's the Judaizers, the Jews that taught that Gentiles had to obey all Jewish laws before they could become Christians. 
they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. And they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And that's apparently not even just the heathens. That's those that were going to church. Obviously, there's much to be corrected. And that's exactly the purpose for Paul's letter to Titus, to give him explicit instructions on what to teach his elders about pastoring their congregations. This letter was not just for specific how-to instructions, but also as a written document that passed on apostolic authority from Paul to Titus. When Titus followed this, he was following apostolic, therefore divine authority. Any future elder who digressed from this teaching was opposing the Lord who had commissioned the Apostle Paul. So what was actually going on in these churches on the island of Crete? Were they just a bunch of people with a minimum inoculation of religion? Or were they just not tithing? Or they only attended Easter and Christmas services? Or were they simply not well organized without any real set purpose? Or was there a deeper-seated spiritual issue going on that had just taken over their lives? Chapter 1 says, gives us some insight who they really were. For there are many rebellious people, talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced because they're ruling the whole household. And that's for dishonest gain. It's interesting to note that the effect their hearts and behavior was having on their families, ruining whole households. In Acts 16, we find Paul and Silas preaching in prison. And you know, they were miraculously released. And the jailer panics and says, Sir, sir, what must we do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Amazing the influence of a whole household when godly principles are acted on. In verse 16 we read, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Paul made it very clear in their very first chapter in his letter to Titus, the desperate hearts and pulse beats in the churches in Crete. And then he immediately gives clear instructions as to how to deal with this. Two themes are evident. First, man is a sinner and needs to hear from God. In Romans 10, we read the familiar emphasis from Paul. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? They needed a preacher sent on sound doctrine. The second theme is good works or fruit. They're products of a good heart. Luke 6, 45, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. 
And so Paul immediately starts his instructions in chapter 1. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what's left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There are apparently some brand new churches there that without qualified elders and several more established churches without elders practicing sound doctrine. It was both a moral and a theological issue at Crete. It's important to remember for both them and us, it was never intended to simply be a matter of one person with some clout going around assigning his friends and local movers and shakers to the role of a local elder. It was imperative that this selection needed to be the work of the Holy Spirit. As Paul was saying farewell to his dear elders in Ephesus, he states in Acts 20, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Even his own apostleship or eldership, as recorded in Acts 13, was established through the Holy Spirit. As we read, as the prophets and teachers in Antioch of Syria were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then he begins with the very specific requirements of an elder. This certainly was not a list of quickly thought up ideas that Paul had just recently written in a personal letter to his younger friend, Timothy, instructing Ami on that same issue. Again, the last two weeks, we've heard very similar instructions to Timothy. Titus 1, 6 an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to charges of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's obvious Paul is very concerned with the issue of sound doctrine. As he repeats in 2 verse 1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Just a little note, in my past, I've always been interested in practical applicable, those kind of things. And I'm discovering more and more that the key is sound doctrine. Doctrine is not a dirty word. It's my very life. After Paul has addressed Timothy to his purpose, as well as training uh, the other new elders in the various churches, he immediately turns his attention to five other groups within churches. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and servants. He switched those whom he was addressing from the pastors to the congregations. The emphasis is on the evangelistic impact that godly laity is to practically live out in a desperate world. He begins with his instructions to the older men. And I think there's a reason why. I don't know for sure about society of Paul's days, but in today's society, 
we frequently joke about aging. We, for example, you know you're getting older. You know, when you get winded and you haven't been anywhere. Or you know you're getting older when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. Uh, I read a book about that. In fact, I'm writing a book about that. We need to be very careful. I need to be honest with you because it's embarrassing. There is absolutely nothing more deplorable in the whole world than a dirty old man. And we've seen him. I think that's why Paul starts out so strongly in chapter 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. That was not intended to simply mean academically sound, but rather a character quality that was fitting, appropriate for the many godly men to follow in the Bible who really set the tone for us. My two favorite Bible characters are Nehemiah and Caleb. Nehemiah, because he was a remodeler and he prayed a lot. And Caleb, we uh, see in Numbers 14, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him back to Canaan. Then in Joshua 14, as God is assigning the promised land, Caleb will be able to say, so here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still just as strong as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle as I was then. Now give me the Anakites. I'm not asking for Anakites. I'm not even looking for them. But I'm still really motivated by how God moved in Caleb's life. One of the themes of Titus is that sound doctrine leads to godly behavior. One is a direct result of the other, intentionally. It can't be any other way. In Galatians 5, Paul says, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and he goes on. The Spirit is necessary. So is the fruit which follows. In Romans 12, he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, which is your reasonable or spiritual service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable. And may I even say perfect. In the book that some of us men are studying together, Let the Men Be Men, the author states, listen closely to three sentences. Sound doctrine is right teaching that results in righteous living. Sound doctrine is correctly interpreted biblical truth that results in increasingly Christ-like behavior. It is healthy truth that is lived out. That's exactly what Paul was trying to impress on Titus. For him to in turn instill in the lives of elders who would then pass on to their congregations in the churches in Crete. 
His emphasis for a pastor or elder was not on education or charisma or even giftedness, but rather on his moral and spiritual character and especially on his ability to teach the word of God. Chapter 1.9 says, so that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. As I've watched some of you and as I've experienced personally, when we're younger, much of our time and busyness, and to some extent even our sense of self-worth that was wrapped up in what we did. As we age, we begin to lose both the mindset and the ability to live on the edge with that certain amount of younger impulsiveness for which we can be grateful. But is that simply a result of aging, getting older, or is it a result of spiritual maturation? Paul calls us older men to live holy, exemplary lives before the Lord, before the church, and before the world. Chapter 2, teaching older men to be temperate, worthy of self-respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, and love and endurance. That doesn't sound like a mild suggestion. In reference to being temperate, 1 Peter 4 says, spells out, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. No further reason needed. The older man is to be dignified. We have certainly been given enough years to learn sensitivity to those that struggle and what is and what is not funny. Then sound in faith and love and endurance for those men who are older, that is not simply a result of God giving us many years. Along with that, came many difficulties which are a vital part of God's training program for our spiritual maturity. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul shares, you, however, know about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured we're going to take the class. We might as well learn something. The second group in the church that Paul addresses, addressed to Titus is the older women. Chapter 2, he states, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be a slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Throughout history, God provided many women who consistently demonstrated what Paul was teaching Titus. Certainly Anna the prophetess, whom Luke speaks of in chapter 2, she was very old and never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying, giving thanks to God, and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Then Hannah and Mary, who pondered and actually parented the very Son of God. Then Timothy, as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1, <clears throat> I have been reminded 
of your mother, of, of the sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. They are called to be reverent in the way they live. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. How do the older women get to be that way? I suspect uh, God's principles was that when they were younger, they in turn had older women in their lives. Paul ends his instructions for older women with a reason why. Verse 5 says, So that no one will malign the word of God. As Paul is ending his instructions for teaching the older women, he goes immediately into the instructions for younger women. Continues in verse 4, Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Paul has already given those same instructions to Timothy. And then Paul immediately continues with instructions for the young men. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then finally, Paul addresses slaves. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Take note that Paul gave Titus very specific instructions as to his teaching for each of these specific groups. The older men, the older women, the younger women, the old, uh, younger men, and the slaves. And there's explicit reasons as to why. For the older men, Peter called them to be self-controlled so that they can pray. For the older women and younger women, Paul called for reverence and other character qualities so that no one may malign the word of God. For the slaves, Paul calls them to be subject to their masters and everything so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Obviously, the emphasis in reasoning was not simply horizontal and man-centered, but more so vertical and God-centered. Paul has now finished giving Titus instructions regarding how people within the church, five different groups, are to treat each other. Next, he moves outside the church. For them and for us, those outside the church are a much greater number than those within. Chapter 3, 1, he says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show, show true humility to all men. It's easy to sit in the back row and heartily agree with Paul. Those people certainly should be acting better than they are. Paul immediately instructs people of Crete, as well as us at Redemption Hill, of something that we just as soon ignore. Chapter 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, 
deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This is the very same admonition Paul gave the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Then Paul ends Titus with this reason for how we should treat each other by saying in verse 8, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul started his instructions to Titus with an emphasis on sound doctrine. Not simply as a theological set of rules to hang in front of the church, but as a deep-seated heart commitment with a purpose. He knew that God's grace would develop into that a way of living, of behaving. So much so that he even cautions and encourages us in Galatians 6, don't grow weary in well-doing, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. In Acts 4, we see the Sadducees watching and criticizing Peter and John. Verse 13 says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. It was the sound doctrine of Peter and John that led to their behavior of good deeds, resulting in the world taking note. Fellow believers at Redemption Hill, be encouraged and go and do thou likewise. So we are now excused for a little while till we get a chance to come and worship again.